0: Welcome to the Todd DeVoe Show, exploring the best ideas and lessons for leaders. Good morning, good morning, or good afternoon, depending on where you are in this fine world. Uh, In the news, you know, the war in uh, the Ukraine still rages on, and uh, our our thoughts and prayers are definitely with the people that are impacted by that. Uh, To my friends that are over there that are uh, doing great work, uh, keep it up and keep your head down, and we do appreciate everything that you're doing. But today we're talking about, well, maybe it kind of ties in, but we're we're talking about climate refugees and migration due to climate. And we have one of the world's greatest experts in that, Patrick Marchman. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you for the kind words. (laughs) Climate refugees. I I think that's something that we have to really start thinking about. I don't, well, are, are they really refugees or are they just climate migrators?
1: well i think that that's that's actually an interesting place to start so i know that the refugee is sort of a term of a legal term of art and there's a lot of resistance to kind of using that in a more formal way um so that's one thing another thing is people leave for lots of reasons sometimes climate is only second or third order maybe just to find a better job or instance so there's a there's a whole range so i kind of prefer this the term migrants
0: migrants okay We'll, we'll go with that. I, and I, I kind of agree with you on, on that aspect of it. But I think it's interesting, like, you know, when we think of this, this is the the myopic view of America, I think, that we put a – we always think of people coming from different countries uh, when we're looking at, at those issues. And realistically, we're seeing it happen here from issues in the United States, right? I mean, there's a city or the town, I guess, or county um, in central California, which is without water. Right. Zero waters in there. And so they have to make a decision at this point. Do they stay there and truck in water so they can live in their home or do they do they move and go someplace where there's actually water that they can can utilize? Is, is, would that fall into that
1: same idea of what you're thinking about? I, I think it would. Um, honestly, I mean, you know, you know, yeah, I mean, that that's definitely going to be something that, you know, affects the general question of where are people going to go. And, you know, if you can't, if, if you're literally not going to have the water to be able to live in your house, you know, even if you have a million dollar house that has the best view in the world, you know, it's not going to really do you much good. So yeah, even that kind of person can be a, can be a migrant. It's uh, yeah, it's, um, it is really interesting. And you're right in that, you know, it's, um, it definitely is not just overseas. It is from right here in the U S.
0: So, we're seeing this due to the impacts due to, well, climate change due to, I mean, wars and everything else like that. That's a different type of refugee. But, I mean, realistically, there's environmental impacts that are occurred uh, due, to, due to that, right? I mean, like, if you take a look at what's happening over in, in Ukraine right now, um, I mean, they're using some interesting explosives, if you will, uh, that could have some uh, residual effect for many years to come. Is that, would that fall into the same category or would that still be more of a war refugee
1: well i i mean i i would have i would hesitate to call any of the the people who are fleeing in the past week from ukraine and i heard last night decimals like over a million people in the past six days yeah. um and so i'd hesitate to call them environmental right now um but I, I, again i, I want to kind of go back on just a bit to that because you know i i think you know sometimes we think of you know very few people at this stage are going to say you know, they're going to leave because of climate change. It's a second or third order thing. And so if you're looking at sort of the environmental slash climate drivers of things, you know, um, you definitely have to look at, um, you know, w- one of the projected impacts of this is going to be more conflict worldwide. Mm. And so, um, you know, one of the things I was thinking about recently, we're about at the 50th anniversary of the limits to growth report from MIT. And um, there's been every, every 10 years, somebody goes back to it and they go, yep. We're on track. And um, so one of the things that you kind of see frequently is the the idea that, you know, as sort of the global poly crisis of all these different things, you know, kind of starts biting a little bit, there's a more greater likelihood of conflict. So I'm not going to say that's the direct cause of what's happening in Ukraine right now. But I, I will say that, um, you know, these increasingly kind of conflicts that almost almost seem to disregard the the systems that we've kind of put together and sort of our political and economic global systems. Um, this is kind of not unexpected.
0: Let's, let's talk about that for a second, because I had some interesting questions that came in in my head. At least they're interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so we think about global conflict and based upon land grabbing, right. Kind of like what we feel or what the, what the pundits are saying Russia is doing today. today. Um, but we do have um, issues where people need, like countries need, or, or individuals or whatever, need water. Um, you mm-hmm. can see some of those issues that are happening. Some of the conflict that we have um, in, the, in the African continent is where nations are coming to grab water or, or, or other goods, other things like that. Um, and then here specifically in, U- in Ukraine is the breadbasket, right? I mean, they, they have a lot of areas where they're growing corn. Um, and, and wheat uh, are two of the the biggest exports from there. And China uh, actually gets a lot of their corn and wheat, uh, from, from Ukraine. So I I find that kind of interesting in the aspect of, are are some of these conflicts going for resources? Um, is that what you're seeing as
1: well in your research? Um, well, you know, this gets, this gets geopolitical in a sense that, uh, you know, I'm definitely not the, um, i definitely not the the complete expert in some of this, so um, right. But I will say that uh, that is a really important thing that we're looking forward. To. I mean, I would say there was a report last year. ProPublica and the New York Times did a report looking at this sort of thing on a global, including a global level, and they actually did, you know, look at sort of the Asian landmass. And you're right; it's not only Ukraine, but Russia itself, you know, are huge exporters of you know grain and and everything else, and so right now you're saying what there's all this disruption, the prices are you know, going up everywhere and, you know, North America right now, we can handle this sort of thing, but places in Africa, they, they really can't. And so, um, and, and I, and one thing I would say, you know, although recent decisions may call this into question, leaders of like Russia and these countries are not dumb and, you know, they tend to look forward right. um, in, in time. And so, um, they they see some of the same data we have, and I would definitely say the Chinese are not dumb. And so um, I think these uh, sort of things are ca- are ca- maybe not first sort of calculations, but definitely in the back of people's minds.
0: Yeah, I always like to look at the what it's in the back of people's minds because I think sometimes when we see what looks like the reason um, for one, it is it may not be what the what the true underlying causes are, right? Because like to me, and, and I know we're not. Right here, talk about the, the conflict right now but just it's in my head is that it doesn't make sense geopolitically speaking uh for now for why why is putin deciding to do this and there's i am just really struggling to find answers so maybe that's why i'm kind of pulling at straws yeah. with, with with other things you know but um I mean, but the reason why i kind of bring that up is these conflicts do create environmental issues right i mean mm-hmm. I mean, they're dropping some serious I mean you know munitions down at um, certain areas. I mean you could there's a bomb that they have uh, that they said they use I haven't they're still not sure if they use it or not. they're going back and forth. but the, the, the design of the bomb is to be dropped into a wooded area, blow the trees out so you can create a helicopter landing area. You know and it just, just think about what that could do. What what does that do to the environment there and, and what are the impacts that are, are around on, on that, you know? So that's kind of why I was kind of parlaying this question based upon munitions.
1: Yeah, I've never I've never heard of that specific kind of bomb, but you know, again, uh, war has always had a negative impact on environment and uh, you know, where for whether depleted uranium, you know, casings on shells, whatever what whatever you might have. And today is probably, you know, again with the technologies that are available to, you know, different participants, you know, it's um yeah, it's uh it's 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 a definite thing to consider. So
0: I mean, we're, we're we're America. We are not uh, not guilty of of doing stuff like this. I mean, we use napalm in Vietnam and also Asian Orange, you know, to to deforest places and and so. I mean, it, it, we do. It's it's just an environmental uh, wreaking environmental havoc on on places that we go into. So that's kind of why I was bringing that up. Mm-hmm. So, what should we expect as emergency managers? You know, how do we plan for? Or I should say, how do we plan for? What should we be planning for when it comes to um uh migration to to climate issues or environmental issues
1: well that that's a that's a that's a really good question i think the and, and i'll just preface this by saying things are really really early as in it, it's still i mean we're in a very early stage here uh and that means you're gonna see a lot more coming um so i would say the first thing to realize is to realize that it is coming um, to realize that you're going to see it from different, you know, several different angles, you know, um, be it, you know, to a classic idea of refugees to being sort of to the um, the kind of more subtle real estate based thing, which, you know, uh, the Urban Land Institute recently put a really comprehensive report out about that to the classic, you know, idea of, OK, well, you have sea level rise or intensified flooding, you're going to get buyouts. So I think it's the number one thing is to know it's going to happen. Number two is, and this is something that, you know, I, I I feel like I I bang I bang the drum on a lot, and I'm probably not very successful sometimes. Um, but I'll keep doing it. Uh, this time uh, is that we have to get over the idea that past conditions are going to be predictive of future conditions, right. especially now. We absolutely have to. Um, I, I would say a, some some story I saw last week, and this is before the IPCC report on climate adaptation that dropped on Monday. Um, but I will say last week I saw a story that said somewhere like the global water cycle is visibly, you know, impacted to like, you know, we're seeing this again. Far in advance of projections, even 10 years ago. So, if you're looking at the global water cycle, you're getting, you know, we're getting more intense rains. You're seeing this another kind of brick in the wall of the proof of that. Then you've got to be thinking in terms of hazard mitigation, for example. um, You've got to be thinking, you know, okay, well, we got a plan for that. You can't just look back and say, well, here was a flood in 1800 and here's what happened. I mean, you, you can't really do that. And I think. I think at times that's a difficult message to get through for a lot of through people for a lot of reasons, but I think that's going to be the number that you you got to you got to recognize the future is not going to look like today.
0: Absolutely, it, it is not, and I think that's one of the problems that we do uh, we plan for yesterday's battles, if you will, and not in today's climate. We have to be leading forward. And I think that's one of the things that I really really stress to people, specifically in leadership, is that we need to be leading forward, but we need to be also doing the research. Right, Right. we can't just you know look at a book that was written about the Jamestown flood or whatever and and go, okay, that's where it was. And we need to be looking forward to what's going on right now and really having um, that the information coming in, intelligence coming in. You know, um, I'm I'm looking at some of the comments right now and and I just realized uh, Charlotte says Agent Orange as well, and then um, it also uh, uh, Charles says it makes me think of all the livestock that are killed um, in conflict. Uh, That's that's a really good point as well. And then, oh, how about DDT um, and affected everything and everyone? Are are, are the farming, the, the big farms, um, are they making environmental impacts that we can't um, recover from? Specifically, say like the DDT type stuff, or or uh, all the methane that's being poured out by the
1: uh, large farms and and the, and the sludge that's coming from them. That's, that's a great question. Again, I'm not a really expert in sort of the agricultural area. I know it's right. little bit hard enough to be dangerous. But um, I will <laughs> say that, uh, yeah, I, I mean, you can look at, say, farming, uh, conventional agriculture worldwide. And you can look at it, I mean, not only historically through the historical record from, like, Sumeria, the, the, um, the Sumerians, I think that's, what do you say, Sumeria, um, to, like, the salting of, like, right. the whole, lower tigris and euphrates to today where you can see in the like the midwest and iowa like however many inches of topsoil loss and you'll get things like ddt you know i think there's a cumulative impact there that you know really kind of i mean again we struggle to understand these things i don't think human beings are very good at it um but it does definitely have some an impact and i and i'm not even touching on things like hormone endocrine disruptors or whatever what's happening out there but um yeah there's a lot <laughs> That's it.
0: You know, that's, you know what, I mean, let's rewind that for a second because you just kind of made me think about this. So you're right. I mean, the the ancient farmers, if you will, actually really pushed desertification of the area, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we, we, you know, the, the salt snow of the sea and then the fact that the topsoil goes. So, you know, some of the, the desert areas that we have today, once we're lush valleys, you know, so I guess humans have really... Uh, historically, just been destroying, destroying the environment even before we had chemicals.
1: Well, I don't. Yes, yeah, somewhat. I mean, yeah, people. I mean, some cultures absolutely have. Other cultures, you know, didn't. There's one. I, and if anyone's like paying attention, um, they have like an extra, you know, week or two to kill. There's a 500, 600 page book out by the late David Graeber, um, and David Wingrow, an archaeologist in England, called The Dawn of Everything, which kind of gets sort of an alternate picture of like prehistory and such, and it really does illustrate. You know, um, a lot of the diversity and such we've seen. So yeah, human beings and cultures have done a whole lot of bad stuff, um, but also some of them have not. You know, they've uh, we've always manipulated our environment, but we've just done it. You know, some places better, some places worse. So it's not like an inevitable thing. But when it has happened, boy, it has happened.
0: And and you're right. And the only reason why I bring this up because I mean, for, uh, first of all, it was brought up in the comments, but the got kind of me thinking. Like, I, I guess my question is, is Is Can we, and maybe we probably don't have time to answer this question today for sure, or maybe even the the technology, but with this idea of the climate change or the environmental migrants, is there anything that we could do to mitigate the issues in their communities now, in their cities, uh, in their countries that make them so they don't have to leave?
1: You know if i if, if I were sitting in d c and had the authority to you know mandate this, that's exactly what I'd be thinking um I remember back in the last administration there was a lot of talk about caravans and migrants and such, but there was surprisingly little talk about okay well you can you can have big defensive walls or such, but what about you know working or making leave which in Central America a lot of them were very climate-centric in terms of desertification and like highlands of Guatemala and places like that so yeah there's a lot of things we can do and I think we're going to have to I think it's what's going to have to happen will be a mix of approaches they'll have to be a mix of yes con- richer countries will have to accept more you know people and at the same time as having to try to create better situations for those at home for ways to you know kind of uh reduce the uh, the burden on on the those home countries that kind of help them adapt as well it's gonna have we're gonna have to be juggling a whole bunch of balls at the same time to do this successfully
0: so the migrant caravan that came in from south america was due to climate or due to environment
1: a lot of it was yeah there's um you can actually again uh you know and i feel bad about this i recommend the new york times a lot but i don't have a subscription so i like rely on <laughs> on like you know like free articles or whatever but um there was a. Uh, There was actually a series of really interesting journalism. And I think also a few other publications did this looking at Guatemala specifically. Um, And, you know, a lot of those caravans were not from Mexico itself, from Central American countries where, you know, a lot of those people, you know, frankly, they, the agriculture they're doing was very substance level. And when the rain stopped and when things happened, they just couldn't make it anymore.
0: Mm.
1: So a lot of it was. And so, well, that's another thing you have to, that I I really kind of stuck in my mind is that, you know, when people see their land drying out around them, you know, they're generally not a lot of people are not just going to sit there and watch their kids start. They're going to do something. And so, you know, we have to, I think that's going to motivate things a lot in the future as well. So, you know, it's a, it's interesting thing. I would definitely recommend people look at that, but um, you know, the migrants just didn't sit there and decide one day, Oh, we're just going to go through a 2000 mile trip and go through Mexico's very heavy border controls just to, you know, come here. They, they, they had reasons.
0: Yeah. And it was not a, uh, a very, <laughs> excuse me, easy trip either. Right. I mean, there's no. a, a lot of, uh, along the way. Mexico is not necessarily uh, friendly to them at all. And then of course, you know, um, they got stuck there. Right. I mean, with, mm-hmm. there's really no place to go and, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the the thing is, is we have to really policy wise, you know, understanding that this is an issue. Um, when we have environmental migrants, is that how do we take them in? Can we take them in? What do we do with people that you know? Whether I mean, it's I say it's unfair to Mexico. I mean, they're 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 having the same issues, right? They're having the migrants come in uh, there as well, right? I mean, to all these nations worldwide you know, what do we do with people that are migrating due to the fact that they're where they're at doesn't sustain them anymore. You know, water is a big issue. Mm-hmm. When I say water, potable water, right? You know, um the the there's a book, and I forget who wrote it. Um maybe you know this one is called The Water Wars. It's written about the water in India mm-hmm. and it, it's going to the fact that it's non-drinkable, right? The mm-hmm. Ganges River is, is not the, is it the Ganges anyway? The river that goes through there is, is not, uh, it, the water is just poison now because of everybody putting feces and chemicals and stuff like that into it. And so, this country has this great river running through it, but it's unusable for, for drinking water at least. Um, and and so, how do you millions? I don't what's the population of India right now, it's it's, it's getting close to a billion, you know, it's like one
1: point four billion. I think it's almost going like to overtake China. Oh, really? Country.
0: Yeah, okay. So, um, so you got four, 4 billion is the population in India right now? 1, 1. 1.4 billion. 1.4 billion. Thank okay. you. I, I knew I, just, I was like, well, that sounded a little high for <laughs> me. Okay. So 1.4 billion. Yeah. And, and exactly. So how do you water? How do you, when I say water, how do you get them fresh potable water? That's not going to kill people, you know? And I think you know we have to think that way and i mean we had the same issues here uh flint michigan for instance with the bad pipes and and where they're getting water from from the uh from the lakes so i mean water is a huge issue for me i i think about
1: it often um you know is that going to be driving people as well i think absolutely 100% um i think you know um I, you know i think you, you've seen some of it already happening um, I, I don't, I don't frankly know. I mean, a lot of it comes to the uncertainty of how the changing water cycle is going to, you know, really impact the drinkability and the ability of, say, farmers to capture some of the water and such. But um yeah, it's it's absolutely gonna become a a, um, a problem. I mean, I you mentioned India. And again, I, I don't want to get into sort of the Indian subcontinent too much, but you know, a lot of the, the rivers coming from the the Himalayas are fed by the Himalayas, for instance, like the Ganges, all those big rivers, right? And so if the Himalayas start, you know, their their snow melt starts kind of going down as well. You've got some big problems there. Just like in Franklin, the Colorado and the US. I mean, you're seeing that sort of thing in terms of like right now, it's like basically you're having political struggles over, sorry, say water and such like that. But I mean, it's, uh, you know, there's things you can do, but at some level, there's only so much you can do. So I think it's absolutely going to be a, a driver of things. It'll be up to us whether we let it get to the point of, you know, more than words, but um, yeah, I think it's going to definitely be an issue.
0: Yeah. The foreign policy.com talks about our India, and Pakistan on the verge of a water war and then the, um, Wire magazine has one on it as well. I was looking for the book name when I was when I was looking right here, but um there's a bunch of articles out there if you want to read. So this is not just um you know conspiracy theorists, if you will, you know, writing the book. This is this is some legit foreign policy um uh, uh that we're looking at um as far as, as what this means. And you're right, you know, the Colorado River um is drying up. I mean, take a look at Lake Mead and Lake Powell, uh, both of those are at the at the lowest they've been in a long time. Um, maybe historically speaking, um, you know, I mean, I've seen pictures of, uh, of, of of what it looked like before compared to what it is today. And it's just amazing to see that. And then I was actually at a lake at a reservoir um, with a friend of mine, who's a bass fisherman, right. He's taken me out fishing and um, it's uh, in Paris, uh, California. And the ladder where the boat used to be able to get up to, to get up this, this, to get up to the, to the top of, off of the lake is like 20 feet high. And then and he was like, yeah, the water used to be up there. That used to be in the water, you know? So, I mean, that's just to, just to kind of let you know how, how quick we're drying out. And, um, you, you know, what, I know we did, again, we don't have the answers here, but what, what is the answer to that? I mean, we can't stop using water. I guess we could, you know, go to, um, you know, here in California, we can stop watering our lawns. I mean, that's, I suppose that's a part of an answer, but you know, outside of that, I mean, we still got to take showers, we still have to eat, we still have to mm-hmm. cook, we still have to, you
1: know, I mean, what's the answer to the water consumption issues that we're having? It depends on where you are. In, in California, places like that, you will learn to live differently. Remember, before uh, the Europeans got there, you had a lot of thriving cultures that kind of did their own thing and were actually um, quite a lot of leisure time, doing very well. However, they lived very differently than you know we tend to live. So you know, it really depends whether we're going to have the flexibility. I'm not saying everyone needs to go to live like that. Absolutely. But I'm saying there's going to need to be the acceptance that it'll probably be radical change for people to be able to still live where they are. And frankly, I think at some level, some people are probably going to have to go. Um, it's uh it's a big problem. And I also want to mention something I was thinking of when you we were talking about this. It's um, so I live right now in Kansas city, Missouri. I'm not speaking from there, but that's where I you know live right now. And so, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the dry line. Um, the, it's sort of like that line through the middle of the continent where you get more moisture and less. So that the dry line has been sort of marching eastward by a certain number of miles every year. And hmm. so um, there's going to come a point where it's going to, you know, it, it's still kind of in the middle of Kansas and such like that. It's going to come a point where it's going to get to places like, you know, Kansas City and Omaha. But more, more importantly, it's going to get to the very rich farmlands. And so hmm. you have to really think, differently about how you're going to farm where you're going to get the water to farm again you know this and other thing last thing i want to mention it's not just a matter of having too little water it's sometimes so one thing you've been seeing in the great lakes for instance is sort of the wild fluctuations in the level of water so sometimes it's gone like extreme flooding the city of chicago is seeing a lot of problems trying to figure out what to do with that so you know some places are going to get too much water some places are going to get too little water i think that's really the nature of climate change
0: yeah i mean in snow for instance right i mean you, you know boston a couple of years in a row had so much snow they didn't know what to do with it and uh that was at the same time here on the west coast we didn't have any snow coming. You oh, know? Nice. So, so so yeah, yeah. And i mean I, and at the end of the day you're right it's the you know speaking of snow it's a snowpack that really makes a difference in the winter time you know the, the the rain is always critical but uh it, it's that sustained rain it's not just those one or two days of of, uh, large rainfalls that create problems that we have here, like the, uh, you know, debris flow and whatnot. It's, it's the over the whole rainy season, if you will, that we need to have that rain happening. And it's not, not occurring. Well, Patrick, I know we have a lot of, we're, we're going to be having a webinar with you here in mm-hmm. in May. Um, what are we going to talk about that at that, uh, at the webinar, and what people expect?
1: We're going to talk a little bit about the, um, this, um, are also going to be talking more about, um, sort of the some of the some of the specifics around climate migration and the sort of managed retreat, which is the buzzword that people use uh you know to describe um like kind of on the smaller scales and you know town uh, na- uh, houses neighborhoods towns, and such and um I want to try to look at it from a couple different perspectives because sometimes we look at it only from a legal or policy perspective, but I think things like um real estate and finance and things like that are as important if not more important. Um, as to how this is all going to shake out because it is going to have, um, it's going to have a Titanic impact. And I, I, I use that word deliberately. It's going to have a pretty huge impact going forward.
0: I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to bring in Mark Baker right now to talk about the book, the angry weather Patrick or Patrick, Mike, Mark whatever your name is, Mark Baker. <laughs> I'm just going to, I'm just going to rename you Mark.
2: It's fine. That's fine. <laughs>
0: So, Mark, what's angry weather? What it's all about?
2: So, February, we uh, we worked through angry weather by uh, Frederique Odo. That's my only attempt to say her first name. It's Freddie from now on. Um, but what that was, it was uh, I think parallel to the conversation you're just having. It, it was uh, her, and she put together this team of attribution scientists to take an forensic look at uh, weather, severe weather, and and climate change and be trying to develop a technique, which could take uh, forensic elements from impact of, of a severe disaster and try to trace that back to an origin of what, of what contributed to the climate change that led to that weather and ultimately leading to some accountability and holding, you know, those, those big greenhouse producers uh, accountable at some point, ultimately to, uh, to, to, to bring focus to the, our contributions to climate change and severe weather and the impacts that it has across the world. Um, very interesting book, very inter- interesting technique, you know, as a quasi-law enforcement uh, practitioner uh, in the military and taking that forensic approach and being able to collect that data and then developing, they're, they're pretty close, I think they're almost perfecting to be able to to. You know, contribute that to uh, relate that to a source. I mean, that 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 was interesting to to see that technique develop throughout that and and their experiences. To Ron,
0: what are the takeaways that emergency managers should uh, grab from uh, and leaders should grab from that book?
2: I think I think the biggest takeaways is you know we know it's getting hotter and we know heat contributes to wind and water, uh, but our efforts shouldn't certain, certain focus on trying to mitigate the contributions. Maybe we should look at uh, identifying the risk and developing mitigations better. Using this technique, we can, yes, it, it is a historical finding. We can work its way back to, to an origin, but we can also use it to really predict the future slightly and, and what to expect and what to prepare for uh, as practitioners in the emergency management world.
0: So the environmental issues that we're facing, and and that's actually realistically one of our tenants, right? Of, of the environmental impacts um, of disaster in general, uh, whether it's uh, due to um, weather or due to earthquakes or whatever the issue is, uh, when we have um, disasters, we have to look at the environmental impacts on that and know what that really means. Um, are, what are some of the solutions that she came up with in her book?
2: So that, I mean, just holding, bringing that focus to light, the, to the contributions uh, that we're having on it. Uh, but she also made a good, good point that that's only a small percentage of the, the bad result of severe weather. The, the human beings, we still have a significant part in that, and where we decide to develop our houses and what we decide to build with and the mitigations we decide to, or decide not to uh, implement as well. Uh, no real solutions really suggested, just a, a broader sense of awareness and and being able to use that data collected and gained to predict and mitigate future impacts.
0: Absolutely. Well, Mark and Patrick, thank you so much for your time today. Patrick, how can people find you?
1: Uh you can uh find me on LinkedIn. Uh look up look up look me up by my name. I'm pretty active there. And um I have a Twitter feed as well. Um, again, look me up by my name. I'm I'm around there. But um yeah.
0: And if you guys are driving down the road, don't worry. We have Patrick's um, uh, information in the show notes. So just go ahead and click on those links. If your pencil's not sharp and you're, uh, where you're driving, please don't write where you're driving. Uh, <laughs> go ahead and just uh, click on those links and, and uh, reach out. Thank you both for your time today. Hey, everybody. Thank you for spending, for spending so much time with us this morning. It's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you for everybody in the comment section, Charlotte and Elaine and Tony, of course, you know, always there. It's a, it's, a, it's great to see you all. And, hey, everybody. Until next week, stay safe and stay hydrated.